So we are continuing in our Family of God on Missions series. In fact, this is the end of our Family of God on Missions series today. We're wrapping it up today. I want to give you a bit of a heads up, though, about what's coming next. Uh, next Sunday, uh, myself, Pastor Johnny, and uh, the elders will be away at our annual elder retreat. And I uh, would invite and encourage you to be praying for us. It's an important time each year. Uh, we get it, we get to wait away together, and we focus on what it is that the Lord wants us to be focusing on and praying about and, and uh, prioritizing. So please be praying for us. Pastor Eric will be preaching next week, and uh, and so he'll be uh, covering the pulpit next week. And then the following week, we're going to launch into a study of the book of Hebrews called Steady On, Finding Strength in the Book of Hebrews. And that's going to take us... Uh, we'll take a little break around Easter time, but that'll take us all the way through uh, the summer and into the fall. So I'm excited to really dig into the book of Hebrews. It's one of my favorite uh, books in the New Testament. It's going to be a good time. But today we finish up our Family of God on Missions series. And uh, I was heartened by Pastor Johnny's message from last week. Hopefully you were here and caught that, or if you missed it, you were able to hear it online. But in particular, the idea that we all need to be using our gifts in order for all of us to grow into maturity, the interdependency that we have in the use of our gifts. I've, all, I've, I've tended to focus on spiritual gifts as a way to maximize my own personal growth, right? So that if we don't use our gifts, we stagnate. That's a, a lot of the ways that I've thought about spiritual gifts in the past. But what Pastor Johnny brought out of the text uh, last week, which I thought was so helpful, is, is that we as a congregation, as a body, stagnate if we're not using our gifts. In other words, I can't become all that God wants me to be if you're not using your gifts. And you can't become all that God wants you to be if I'm not using my gifts. Which is a way of saying that if you're not using your gifts, you're stunting me. Don't be stunting me. I, I need you and you need me and we need to be using our gifts together. So that was an encouraging message from last week. But on to this week. Our passage has already been read for us, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, and you, you caught no doubt as you read, as the passage was read, uh, the primary metaphor that Paul is using here in this passage is that of warfare and conflict. And to be sure, the Christian faith is all about love, and Paul's been at pains throughout the letter of Ephesians to emphasize the love of God and the love that we should have for each other. But that doesn't mean that the Christian faith isn't also, at the same time, about conflict. But even though the Apostle Paul is using warfare imagery here in this passage, he's deploying it in a radically and distinctly Christian way. Christians are called to fight, but it's crucial that we remember who we're fighting against, how we're fighting, and most importantly, what we are fighting for. We live in a world of conflict. <laughs> I was working so hard just to keep pressing through, but I, I couldn't do it. It's okay, Grace. Don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> Christians live in a world of conflict. And uh, there are lots of things, there are lots of things that we can be fighting about and that our culture does fight about, whether it's power, whether it's money, pleasure, prestige, politics, differing moral visions. If you just spend any time on social media or Facebook, you see all the ways that we fight in our culture about all sorts of things. And this passage is a good reminder for Christians that we do not wage war as the world does. We don't engage in conflict in the same way that the world engages in conflict. 
But I hope it's also helpful. I'm praying that it's helpful as well. It's a clarifying word for the the yet-to-be Christians among us. Those who perhaps can be excused for suspecting that Christianity is really nothing more than just a political or cultural power grab. And there's so much conflict in our culture, and as Christians engage in that conflict, if, if we engage in it in the way that the world engages in it, then we can give off signals and vibes that we're just using our faith as a cloak to, to assert our own uh, predominance or power in the culture. There's three primary things, I think, that Paul wants us to remember in today's passage, taking them roughly in order uh, as they come here in the passage. The first is to remember who you are fighting against, number one. Two, to remember who you are not fighting against. And three, to remember what you are fighting for. These are the three points that I want to draw from this passage that will form our sermon And then we're going to culminate our time together uh, at the table because there would be no family of God on mission for God if it wasn't for the hope that we have that's offered to us here at the table. All right, so our first point, remembering who we are fighting against. Paul is drawing, in our passage here, Paul is drawing to the end of his letter. He's written a lot of things. He's getting to the last major section of his letter, the last thing that he wants to leave the church in Ephesus with as he uh, concludes his letter. And he recognizes that everything that he's counseled the Ephesians up to this point is going to be met with resistance. That it's not going to be easy to believe the gospel that he's articulated as we saw in 2, 1 through 10. It's not going to be easy to embrace their spirit-wrought unity that we saw in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, or to comprehend God's love that he articulated in 3, 14 through 21, or to serve one another in humility in 4, as he talked about last week, we locked up last week in 4, 1 through 16. And beyond just the weakness of the flesh and basic human frailty, Paul tells us that there are powers that are resisting us in our best intentions. Look at verses 11 and 12. He counsels the church in Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he kind of develops this a bit more. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As the Ephesians seek to follow God's will for their lives, they're going to inevitably find themselves up and wrestling against evil spiritual powers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, what is Paul referring to here? He's mentioned these powers, these authorities, these cosmic rulers a number of times already in Ephesians. We haven't looked at all of them. We looked at a few of them. But in 120 through 22, the Apostle Paul talks about how Jesus has been raised up above all rule and authority that is in the heavenly places. And then again in 3.10, the church, the the glory of the church, the manifestation of the church proclaims the power of God to to the rulers and the powers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And Paul doesn't talk a lot about these powers and authorities, doesn't give a lot of precise detail, except to say that some of these rulers and powers and authorities in the heavenly places are aligned with God and serve God on behalf of God's people. But some of these powers and authorities have broke with God. They are enemies of humanity. 
So we have these cosmic powers that are in the heavens. And we know that they do in fact exist, that some of them are malevolent powers that answer to the devil, and that these evil powers currently have the upper hand. This is the point that Paul makes in 2, 3 that we looked at, chapter 2, verse 3, that, that there is uh, the prince of the power of the air. It's a reference to Satan who, who occupies the world. In other words, we live as Christians in enemy-occupied territory. So even though Christ's victory over sin and death signaled the ultimate victory over these evil spiritual powers, they nonetheless remain a very real threat and a very real presence that we have to contend with. And whenever we set ourselves to doing God's will, Paul is saying, whenever we step out to do the things that God has called us to do, we can expect that these evil cosmic powers will rise up against us. All right. Now some of us, we're very enthusiastic about this. Perhaps you come from a tradition, a church tradition, that gets very excited about entering into conflict with these cosmic powers. It's all very exciting and dramatic, like something out of Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. Right? Others of us, coming perhaps from different traditions, it all sounds very strange and weird. And we don't quite know what to do with it. And we don't deny it outright, we just choose not to think about it. Well, I think there are two ditches that we can fall into as we consider what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6 about these cosmic powers that we fight against. We want to we kind of stay on the middle road, right, the high road, and then, and then on either side there's gullies, there's ditches that we can fall into. One of the ditches that we can fall into as we consider the reality of spiritual forces, we can blame them for everything. So there's a, that there's a demon behind every bush, and I think the problem with this, if we push this out too far, is that we can begin to ignore our own culpability. We can begin to ignore the part that we have to play and why things aren't going according to God's design. Perhaps your child is rebelling because there are evil spiritual forces at work. No doubt, if your child is rebelling, there are. But perhaps your child is rebelling because you're a bad parent. Like, that might be a part of the solution, too. And if you push all of the blame on to the evil spiritual forces that are opposing God's will and don't look at your own participation or culpability in it, you're going to have a blind spot. Right? So we can overemphasize this in ways that ignore our own culpability. That's one ditch to fall into. But the other ditch that we can fall into, and I suspect that this is the ditch that most of us tend to fall into, at least coming from the traditions that Calvary kind of operates in, is we can live our lives functionally as though the devil and these evil spiritual powers don't exist. We just, we just don't know what we believe in them because we read Ephesians 6, and after, after all, this is God's word, and so God says it, you know, there. But we don't really functionally believe that they exist. I think the biggest problem with this like, well, what's wrong with that? Like, what's wrong with that? Well, I think the biggest problem with this is I consider my own life, because this is the ditch that I would tend to fall into. Right? If I'm going to fall into one ditch, it's not the blame a demon for everything. It's blame a demon for nothing. Right? That's the ditch I'm going to fall into. And I reflected on this passage as I was preparing it, and I was, was really kind of convicted about this reality that I don't often live into that Paul is asserting here about these spiritual forces that contend against God's people. And, and what is the result of not leaning into that reality? 
I think the result for me, perhaps it's the result for you as well, is that I'm not as prone to pray. Because when I, when I consider, as I was really being forced to do by this text, to consider that my job as a pastor to shepherd you all and for all of us to partner together and to be bringing the gospel to our communities and to the world and thinking about that there are spiritual forces that are opposing those efforts. Like, what does that compel me towards? It compels me to pray. Because I can't... I can't be wise enough to overcome that or charming enough to overcome that or disciplined enough to overcome that or organizationally astute enough to overcome these powers, right? What will overcome these powers is the power of God. And so Paul, when he finishes this passage, which we'll look at here again in a moment, is he's emphasizing prayer. He calls for prayer in light of these powers. And if we neglect the fact of these powers, we neglect, I fear, the call to pray. Few things will motivate us to pray like a robust awareness that there are evil spiritual powers actively resisting the good that God wants to do in our lives. These evil powers aren't the sole source of evil. We bring enough of our own evil and mess into the world. But they are very real. If we will take the Bible seriously, then we need to take this seriously. So we need to not rely upon our own strength, our own capacities, but we need to let the truth of these powers that are resisting us weigh upon us enough to drive us forward into prayer. I'm thinking about the time in the Gospels in Mark chapter 9 when Jesus is away from his disciples and he comes back to find that they have been ineffectual in dealing uh, with one of the situations, a demon that they would not have been able to confront effectively and and Jesus, they say, why could we not cast out this demon? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer. Now, we encounter powers against us that only can be vanquished by prayer. And the fact of these powers, the reality of these powers that Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus and then reminding us about needs to sink in enough to drive us to prayer. So different traditions have different emphases. And whichever you come from personally, right, if you come from a tradition that overemphasizes the, the power of these cosmic powers and ignores kind of human sin and culpability, then, then lean away from that tradition towards the center. But if you come from a tradition like I came from, and that probably represents the majority of us here at Calvary, where we, we just don't quite know what to do with all these cosmic powers, so we just set them aside, right? Bring them back into the purview of your spiritual imagination and, and lean forward in prayer aggressively. Let's not fall into the pretending the devil isn't real camp. All right, so remembering who we're fighting against. It's the important first thing. But on the heels of this, or perhaps even preemptively before this, remember who we are not fighting against. Paul wants to stress that we're fighting against these cosmic powers, but he also wants to stress that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. You see that there in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is just a shorthand term that the Apostle Paul uses. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament to simply mean human. So he's just saying our chief conflict, the chief foe that we encounter are not our fellow human beings, but rather these cosmic powers. And how tempting it might have been for the Ephesians to suppose that their primary conflict was against the powers, the human powers and authorities that they encountered, whether the Jewish powers or the Roman powers that were resisting them in their faith. And I think it's very easy for us to make this same mistake. And in many ways, I think the, 
The clarity that our faith brings to us about right and wrong complicates this a little bit. One of the gifts that is given to us in our salvation is, a, is an opening up of the eyes of the mind or the eyes of the heart the scripture will talk about. Where we come to see the world as it really is. And our, our moral compass becomes more finely tuned. Our sense of right and wrong becomes more acute. And with this clear sense of right and wrong, we can subtly, or perhaps not so subtly, view our fellow man who lives in the wrong that we now see to be true as our primary enemy. But Paul here reminds us that our job is not to fight against, not to fight against those who are under the devil's thrall, but rather to fight to deliver those who are under the devil's thrall. And I think that's an important reminder for all of us, but perhaps it's, it's particularly important, important for those of us who are culture warriors. I'm, no doubt we have some of them, uh, some of you here this morning. And whether it's culture warring on the right, culture warring on the left, however you work that out, the rhetoric that is used today to bludgeon one's political or cultural enemies is not becoming of the cause of Christ. The mockery, the disrespect, the belittling, all of these are antithetical to the Christian faith. So when you engage in cultural debate or political debate, if you sound like a talk show host, probably something is wrong. And that's not to cast aspersion on all talk show hosts. No doubt there are some talk show hosts out there that do this well. But if you drink from the well of pagan talk show hosts, whether it's on the right or the left, and you adopt their rhetoric and their way of debate, it is not Christian. And we need to have a way of dialoguing that is distinctly Christian. What's your view of those whom you are debating? How do you view those whom you know to be wrong and standing against God's justice in the world? Do you view them as the enemy outside the realm of Christian love and grace? Or perhaps even more pointedly, what is your view of those who actually perpetrate or aid the injustice? There are great miscarriages of injustice in our world. I'm thinking here of the recent abortion laws that were passed in New York that have made the news this past number of days. What does it say about our culture that we not only permit a baby to be killed in her mother's womb, but we even celebrate it? Or, or the systemic racial injustices that have been present in our country from our founding that have perpetuated cycles of poverty and violence in our cities? Or governmental abuses of power such as we saw in the Laquan McDonald shooting from last year. These are great injustices, great travesties of what is right. And they are rightly decried by Christians. We should speak against these things not timidly, but clearly and forthrightly. But as we speak against these injustices, we must do so in a way that reflects the inherent dignity and the inherent humanity of those who are wrong. Recognizing that our real enemy is not those who have been deceived, but the one who is the father of lies who does the deceiving. And we are not called by grace. You remember the situation in, in the Gospels where 
John and James, the followers of Jesus, said, a town had opposed Jesus, and they said, Lord, should we call fire from heaven to pay these back? And Jesus rebuked them. Because Jesus had not come to bring fire from heaven upon his enemies. He had come to deliver his enemies into the grace and salvation of God. And we are the agents of deliverance in the lives of those who are wrong, not just those who are being wronged. And so we need to enter into these debates and these cultural conflicts distinctly as Christians. As much as our faith calls us to pursue justice, it also calls us to pursue justice in love. So reserve your enmity, your vengeance, even perhaps your hatred for the hostile spiritual powers that stand opposed to God and his kingdom. But give your love, your grace, and your mercy. Give the gospel of hope and forgiveness to those who have been blinded and wronged by evil authorities and powers. So we've got to remember who we're fighting against. And we've got to remember who we're not fighting against. And then I think perhaps most importantly here, we need to remember what we are fighting for. Paul instructs the Ephesians to gird up for battle. Insofar as we're not fighting against human opponents, we don't fight with human weapons. And so the imagery that Paul draws from here is that of the Roman legionnaire. He tells us that our, our weapons are righteousness and peace, faith, salvation, spirit-filled prayer. These are the weapons of the Christian. This is what we bring to the conflict. And know what Paul says in verse 14. The goal of putting on this armor is that we would stand. He also says this in verse 11. Now, we can tend to think of standing as, an, as, an, as kind of more of a passive activity. But that's not, I think, what Paul has in mind here because Paul is using military language and, and the idea of standing in the face of conflict, it, it, it harkens to the, the way that ancient armies would fight against each other. The Roman legions would come out onto the field of battle to fight against their opponents. And the two armies would rush towards each other and would clash shield upon shield. And they would, instead of engaging in what we might think of a tug of war, they would engage in a shove of war. And the goal was to break the ranks, to break the line of your opponent, to cause them to not be able to stand so that their line would break and they would be routed and then you could rush in and destroy. And so the goal of the ancient soldier was to stand in the face of the enemy's onslaught, to not give way to the press of the enemy. It was everything to stand and to hold one's position. In the same way, Paul says, the enemy presses in against us. These spiritual powers, these ruling authorities in the heavens that have gone rogue, they press in against us, and we must take up the armor of God and stand against them. But what are we fighting about anyway? Why have we come out onto the field of battle in the first place? We're fighting for the spread and proclamation of the gospel. You see that here in verse, look down in verses 17 or 18 and 19. Paul says, We pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayers and supplications, to the end that we keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. And also pray for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul calls the Ephesians to pray for all the saints 
Presumably they're praying for themselves. They're praying for all the saints that are scattered throughout the, the Greco-Roman world. And he also asked them to pray for him too, the great Apostle Paul. And I take it that Paul wants them to pray for each other and for all the saints, what he's asked them to pray for him about. That he might, that the gospel might be proclaimed boldly. The term translated here boldly, we think of that in English, it has a bit more of a confrontational uh, tone to it in English. Uh, it's a bit more in your face. But the, the Greek term that's used here that Paul uses for boldly has a bit, has a bit more of a, 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 a meaning of freely or openly or plainly or confidently. Right? So it's not, it doesn't have quite the aggressive connotations that we think of in the English. But, but Paul is saying pray. Pray for all the saints and pray for me that the, that the gospel would, be, would go forth plainly, unhindered, where, where the whole world would hear it and see it. We don't need drama or fanfare. We don't need to get heated or combative. We just need the gospel to go forward openly and freely, without pretense. We need to speak what we found to be true. The mission of the church that given by Jesus himself as he was ascending into heaven was to call his followers together and to send them then out into the world, going forth amongst all the nations, taking the message of the gospel, baptizing people in the hope of the life of Christ and teaching them to obey all that Jesus had commanded. This is our one job. It's the one thing that Jesus has asked of us to do. My, I have a, two brothers, one younger and one older, and our younger brother is out in Portland, and so we were, he was having fun with us this past week because of the cold. Texted us that it was so cold out there in Portland, he thought about putting on long sleeves. <laughs> so we were going back and forth, and uh, my older brother, who's out in this area, uh, sent a text saying that Driving to work, uh, he found out that his car had overheated because his antifreeze had frozen. Uh, my younger brother, he writes back, he says, your antifreeze froze. It has one job. Its one job is not to freeze. That's all it's there for. In the same way, the church, we've got one job. There's one thing that we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be proclaiming the gospel freely and openly to a world that needs the hope of Christ. This doesn't mean that all of us are evangelists. That was Pastor Johnny's point, one of his points from the text last week, right? Not all of us are evangelists. Not all of us are gifted in the same way. But it does mean that each of us has a part to play in the open and free proclamation of the gospel. So whether your contribution here, as Paul asks explicitly, is to pray earnestly that the gospel would go forward. Or whether it's to serve, whether children's ministry or student ministries or our greeter ministries or outside the walls of the church, whatever, to serve or, or to bring wisdom or teaching or administration. Perhaps it's giving generously of your time. Perhaps it's giving generously of your talents, giving generously of your treasure. There are endless nearly endless ways that we can participate in the open and free proclamation of the gospel. So what part are you playing in this cosmic battle that the church is engaged in? What is the role that, the, what is the thing that you are doing that 
lends to the victory that Jesus has destined for his church? Or have you retreated so far behind the front lines that you can't even hear the sound of the battle anymore? Maybe you've even forgotten that there is a battle going on. Maybe it's time for you this morning to step up to use the gifts that God has given you and to move back towards the front to assist your brothers and sisters who are engaged in the conflict with these spiritual powers, that the gospel could go forth freely and openly. Maybe say, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. Well, start with the recognition that you have to do something and then just begin to pray. Lord, what do you want me to do? He'll show you something to do. He will bring something to you that makes it clear the part that you have to play in this. This is our one job, is to proclaim boldly the gospel. So we remember who we're fighting against. We remember who we're not fighting against. And remember what we're fighting for. We're not going to win the victory by mere human strength. This is what Paul says at the beginning, right, of verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not our ingenuity, our charm, our strength of will, our discipline will be able to resist the onslaught of the enemy. Perhaps our natural human gifts will avail us for a little bit, but in the end, they will give way. We need to draw upon the strength that God provides. And to keep with the Roman image, the martial imagery that Paul has given us here, I think it's worth saying that we do this together as a family. The Roman legions would array themselves in two primary lines on the battlefield, two primary lines of cohorts. And the frontline soldiers would fight for a while until they were weary or wounded. And then at the signal of the commanding officer, the soldiers on the second line would weave their way through the front line. And the frontline soldiers then would slip back to the rest and the safety of the rear. And back and forth, back and forth throughout the battle, they would spell each other until they had worn down the enemy. I'm not sure Paul had all of that in mind, but I think the analogy is helpful. When you're tired and your faith is slipping and you find it hard to believe the gospel, let alone proclaim the gospel, then I'll move forward into your place on the front line and give you some rest. And then you do the same for me and then we'll do it all for each other. Back and forth, back and forth until the battle is won. We're a family, and so we have to stand together, shoulder to shoulder, supporting each other. We're a family that belongs to God, that is on the mission of God. Amen?